I'm Audrey Hollenberg Duffy. And I'm her husband, Tim Hollenberg Duffy. We are a married couple doing pastoral ministry together under the faith umbrella of Anabaptism and Radical Pietism, more specifically in the Church of the Brethren, and most importantly, for Jesus. We've always enjoyed chats about faith life because we found in each other a companion that gets us, even when it doesn't feel like we fit in the boxes of American life or mainstream American Christianity. We believe the Church is crucial to faith and practice, and yet also accept that religious institutions are crumbling. We believe being disciples of Jesus Jesus rarely fits a pre-made container. So join us for our meanderings as we try to find a faithful Jesus way forward. Welcome to this episode of Coffee with the Pastors. Uh, we're going to continue in our June series focusing on the John letters. But before we dive in, we need to do our Where is God moment. So Tim, where have you seen God recently? At Oakton and at other churches around Northern Virginia, we wrapped up a uh, campaign for Growing Hope Globally pledges. We've got this farm up here in Northern Virginia that we sponsor 10 acres of land to be farmed out at the Midland Church. And our sponsoring of the, the cost of the farming of those acres, we're able to, to sell that barley or wheat, I forget which one it is, at mm-hmm. market value and raise money that we can send to uh, agricultural projects. We're, we're in Guatemala again this year, supporting an agricultural project through Church World Service. And people responded again. It's just such a compelling witness to how we should be a part of alleviating hunger around the world. Mm-hmm. It's not about shipping rice and beans, but it's about agricultural programming that help people have dignity to feed themselves. And I see God and the folks at Growing Hope Globally all the time. And the way they talk about their work. Oh, and it's just a reminder of how there's a similar human need to be connected to the earth in particular, yeah. right? It's not from it, here to there. From yeah. here to there, right? From it's like farmers partnering with farmers around That's the right. world. Anytime I encounter something in nature, it's hard for me to not <laughs> not notice God. And we had uh, some storms roll through the other day that resulted in a nicely shaped bright rainbow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, you know, perpetually four or five, which makes it work well to have a four-year-old when it comes to such things. And they just excite me and delight me. So <laughs> running outside when Tim said, there's a rainbow. <laughs> the four-year-old was excited for the rainbow too. So that's yes. good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, The so. one-year-old didn't know what was going on. No, he's probably like, why? What's going on? Why is everyone so excited? (laughs) (laughs) So we're continuing in this series on 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John. We're on 2nd John today, but we thought we'd do a little refresher review on 1st John, which we talked a little bit about last week. Um, So remember, John's writing to a church that has experienced a schism. It's a schism that's based on a theological disagreement, namely that the folks that have left the church, believed that Jesus was only divine and not human, and the folks that stayed believed Jesus was a divine and human. Um, so the church that John is writing to believes that Jesus did, in fact, come in the flesh, and thus he was human. John continues his writing, or the school of John mm-hmm. continues his writing to this church in, in a schism. So, Audrey, what are some of the themes we've got here in this very tiny little yeah. letter, Second John. 
Yeah, so we went from a letter that had been divided up into five chapters to a one-chapter, 13-verse letter. 13 verses. Yeah. That is short. Yeah. And that includes a greeting and a closing. Yep, a greeting and a closing, and then a really short body. It's it's interesting. It kind of ends with this, like, I could go further, but I want to talk to you in person. And so... You know, there's anticipation that there was some kind of further conversation at some point. So it'd be like me going uh, on a trip and writing home and saying, Hey, Audrey, hope to talk to you this weekend. Love, Tim. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. With a little bit more. With Yeah, with a, a little tiny, bit more. Tiny bit more. Like, a, like a nugget. Like, <laughs> this, this is something I'm going to tell you more about. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. It continues to build a little bit on First John, which in part is why it can be so short. It doesn't have to rehash everything that was in First John, mm-hmm. but it kind of takes it to the next level and, and further gives instruction on the implications of what First John talked about. I th- think you can divide Second John into two themes. One is an encouragement to continue to love one another, which of course was a central theme to First John. And then the second part is giving direction on what to do about these false teachers that are coming into their midst. And the letter calls them deceivers. <laughs> these are specifically ones who are, again, claiming that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And so that's the particular teaching that they're bringing to the community and the writer of this letter has some instruction on how to handle that. So before we go into like the actual content of the letter, I want to I want to note some particular language that's kind of unique to these letters that we don't see in other parts of the Bible. It opens with a salutation to the elect lady and her children. And it ends from the children of your elect sister send you their greetings. And so so there's been some debate about that. Like, are, are these ac- naming actual people? Some argue that there's actual names written in there. But it seems the general consensus from scholars is that this is a metaphor for talking about a congregation or the church, mm. that it's a feminine metaphor. The bride of Christ. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's not unfamiliar mm. to other parts of the New Testament. And sister churches. That's yeah. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. And that's language we still use yeah. today. That's more of a side note. But the reason why this greeting is given, it then kind of personalizes the love that the author wants to express. The author says, this congregation whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. He's kind of starting off with this embedding the community with love. It makes sense if you think about what the author of the letter is writing to. This congregation is dealing with discouragement from these people that are teaching something different. And so it would make sense then that this author would like to remind them that they're still embedded in his love, Hmm. even though they're being told from other places and other teachers that they're maybe they're doing it wrong. Hmm. Uh, That could be obviously discouraging to a community. Mm -hmm. And so there's a corrective offered from the very beginning that they're embedded in the author's love. So then after uh, they're reassured of the author's love, they're told again that they should love one another. A direct parallel to the words of Jesus in John 13, 34 to 35. Remember, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The writer of Second John says that he is not giving a new commandment because for them, love for one another has been a commandment since the beginning. You know, Jesus is the one who created the new commandment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the, the writer of the letter is saying, I'm not, this isn't new to you. I, I think it's helpful to note here that the fact that here in this letter and then First John, when we talked about it last week, you know, of course, they're referencing the gospel of John where there's these teachings on love. And then we've got a spattering of teachings in Paul's letters. It's really throughout the New Testament, you get this consistent love one another. Why? This is the most important thing, yeah. love one another. <laughs> Why do you think that? Because we don't. Because we, we don't do it well. Especially it's... when we're in conflict. Yeah, right. I mean, certainly the, the, the phrases from 1 Corinthians... 13 come to mind when these people are fighting about whose gifts are more important and Paul's like love That's right. <laughs> Love's more important, right? Love's more important not yeah. speaking in tongues or being able to teach or care give love mm -hmm. is more important Right, and that I think becomes a particularly important reminder When we are going through difficult moments. Yeah, and that is why in these letters in particular it gets raised again. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that any time confusion arises within a community, it's often true that we take it out on one another. The appeal to love one another is a reminder that it's something that we have to choose over and over again. That it, as much as we want to think it becomes something that is a part of our culture and second nature, it's often something that we actually have to be very deliberate about. And that's why throughout scripture, and in particular in these letters, I think, there's an appeal to love. And again, it, it makes sense then, since the second half of this letter, this very short letter, is dealing with these theological deceivers. J.E. McDermott, who is the author of the Believer's Church Bible Commentary on these letters from John, says that it's not difficult to imagine that a new teaching about Jesus has caused a breakdown in the community's unity and a failure to obey the commandment to love one another. It, it seems like maybe the way the author talks about these deceivers is in conflict with the way he talks about loving one another, but they really do go hand in hand when you look at just the disorder that could happen in the community when there's, when there's confusion. In the first part of this letter, he fortifies the community with love. And then the second part of this letter, he talks about what to do, literally what to do with these teachers that are coming into their community and teaching them, in particular, this false teaching about Jesus's humanity. Yeah. Essentially, he's telling them, don't let it make a home among you. Don't let it find a foothold, right? That it can yeah, have, have space to thread. So literally, in Second John, they're talking in terms of hospitality, right? Which is a big uh, biblical theme. We can preach entire series on what biblical hospitality is. Here, we're not to show hospitality. Right. <laughs> Don't let it into your home. Don't let it uh, take that overnight room that it might spread. You know, we have a less refined view of Christian hospitality today than there is in scripture. But usually when you're letting someone 
if you're giving someone hospitality, you're also in some ways vouching for them. Mm-hmm. And you give them space, not only in your home, but in your lives. And I think that's in particular what Second John is rubbing up against, is by offering hospitality, you're giving problematic thoughts a place mm-hmm. and legitimacy. But this is a really hard one, right? Because, I mean, I don't know, in, in light of current schismatic kinds of movements, we know these people. We've been disagreeing about stuff for, for eons. Are we really all of a sudden to just stop letting them have a voice at annual conference or on a local level? Are we really supposed to not let them speak up at a congregational business meeting? Or, I mean, to take this kind of, don't show them hospitality, like remove them from our congregational register of membership? like. Well, and I think that's where having the particular context of what the problematic teaching is, mm. is important. The, the problem, I think, when we don't consider the particular problem mm-hmm. that is being addressed in this letter is we can come to generalize it to anything that we claim is false teachings. Uh, and therefore important enough for... Disfellowshipping and and removing and not showing hospitality, not giving a, a space to. Um, and one of the things I like about the way that J.E. McDermott reflects on this particular problem and how it gets translated into contemporary church, you know, he acknowledges that we've been dealing with Christian faith and trying to figure it out for over 2,000 years now. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a diversity of thought that has developed, but we often think about that diversity of thought beginning with the Reformation Mm -hmm. and not the fact that it's been present from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, in the earliest church, he he references an essay written by James Dunn, makes the point that there was diverse groups and diverse understandings of faith from the very beginning. For example, you had communities that had decided to follow Christ out of the Jewish tradition, and then you had Gentile communities that made a commitment to follow Jesus. And they're going to come with different perspectives and different priorities. We see that throughout the entire book of Acts about, you know, what do we expect from those that are in the Jewish ancestry to hold fast to when they commit to Christ and what do we expect the Gentiles to that's that's a consistent conversation in Acts and there's not agreement from the different leaders there's occasional agreements about the particulars and then Paul goes and does whatever he wants anyway (laughs) there was also diversity within these particular circles themselves And so despite the fact that, you know, we like to look back on the early church as a place of unity, there was a lot of diverse thought. Mm. And yet, even saying all that, there were still some non-negotiable truth Ah. for the early believers, which I think is important to name too. And so uh, the the person that wrote this particular essay that uh, McDermott is quoting, Dunn, he identifies several points that it seems were essential to Christian belief, even Mm. early in the church. And so he names these things. God and Jesus are one. Salvation results from faith in Christ, that we can experience the Spirit, 
that the Old Testament and traditions of Jesus are authoritative for faith and life, that there is continuity in Christianity with Israel. In that sense, there's a shared history with Israel, that baptism in Jesus's name and the Lord's Supper remember Jesus, and the need for some kind of ethical outworking of faith through love. Those are the what Dunn identifies as the essential non-negotiables for the early church, and that it seems beyond that, there was willing to have great debate. Uh, McDermott then says, our challenge is to find ways to faithfully articulate these core beliefs, remain devoted to the faith without going beyond it, and specifically by the beyond it language there is what Second John talks about. In verse 9, the author wrote, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ but goes beyond it mm-hmm. does not have God. That he's making a direct connection here, remains faithful to these core beliefs without going beyond it and be relevant to the world around us. And so there's just, there's mm. a lot of moving parts, which is, I think, why there continues to be what feels like even increasingly critical conflict. But such a belief as the non-humanity of Christ is such a threat in John's eyes to being able to do the rest of that. We have to... That has to be a, a, a non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that comes a little bit to what we talked about last time about this direct connection between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. That if we believe that Jesus is only spiritual, then it says something about how we are to be. Mm-hmm. which Spiritual beings, too. Yeah, spiritual beings, which pulls us out of this world rather than an incarnational theology, an incarnational understanding of Christ, embeds us in our bodies and thus requires us to attend to those things. You know, we have to care for one another. We have to, you know, turn to the marginalized and the oppressed and the outcast. There's going to be a lot of conversations about what we put into our bodies in both a spiritual and a physical sense. All of those are important conversations when you are reminded that Christ is incarnational. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting, I would say, the more likely debate we would have about such things today would be Christ was human, not divine. Yes, right. <laughs> right? There, yeah, Which there's is, definitely a pendulum reaction. Yeah, kind of this denial of spiritual life mm-hmm. um, as a response. But I like your Jesus. Yeah. Good ethical guy. Yeah, we should do some of that. Which in the same way... Cheapens it. Cheapens it, yeah. yeah. Dis- mean, disconnects that spiritual reality and... And lets it be only mm-hmm. an ethic for us. And an important part of the divinity of Christ is a recognition that through Christ we were able to accomplish something that would never have been able to be accomplished, and that is forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. That we were able to receive something that we could never do for ourselves. And that's I think that's the important nature of recognizing the divinity today, mm-hmm. is that Uh, if we're looking at a moral ethic, number one, we're going to burn ourselves out because we can't fix everything from Mm -hmm. a very practical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And number two, it is just as important to do what is ours to do as it is to recognize what we cannot do and what we cannot do for ourselves. Exactly. And this is why this issue is so important to John. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it's still important in that sense today. But as I think 
McDermott points out, Dunn points out, and some of the conversations we're having is we elevate other issues to that same critical level that I think has no business being uh, non-negotiable. So we can give hospitality to a whole range of other issues. Yeah. Hear them out. Right. Debate. Let them into our churches and our homes and um, enjoy meals with those ideas mm -hmm. without uh, threatening right. the church. Yeah, so that's that's what Second John has to say to us today. And next week, we'll look at what Third John has to say to us. Again, a very short letter. We'll find something to talk about. We'll find something to talk about. <laughs> so this has been Coffee with the Pastors. Live for the glory of God and our neighbor's good. The primary purpose of this podcast is for conversation and faith exploration. It is intended for private non-commercial use and does not necessarily reflect the opinion of any agency or organization. In this podcast, reference was made to the following resource. Believer's Church Bible Commentary on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John by J.E. McDermott. Check out this book for more information.